This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Can I start by saying that I do feel very, very honoured to have been invited to give the Harold Bond lecture this year, especially as Professor Harold Bond is with us today. Professor Harold Bond, we owe much to your critical analysis of humanitarian operations in response to refugee crises, which pioneered a different perspective on the interaction between refugees and relevant stakeholders. It's wonderful to be back in Oxford and to be among you all at the Refugee Studies Centre. I'd like to thank the Vice-Chancellor for giving me this opportunity to address this most prestigious gathering. Thank you so much. Due to her vast knowledge and experience in this field and her significant role at the Refugee Studies Centre since 1995, it was extremely helpful to be able to draw on the valuable work of Professor Chatty on forced migration and displacement in the Middle East. I first had the pleasure of meeting Dawn in 1996 as an adult student. Whether as a scholar, a former co-supervisor or a cherished friend, My appreciation and respect for Dawn have grown from strength to strength. Another driving force while working on my thesis was having Dr. Eugene Rogan as co-supervisor, and I'm absolutely delighted, Eugene, that we're together again this evening. It means so much to me also that Professor Alan Jones is here this evening. We go back a long way. 46 years, in fact, when I was a rather timid undergraduate and Professor Jones was rather scary. He probably still is. I'm very happy to see you, Professor Jones. And Professor Betts, may I congratulate you on your recent appointment as Director of the Refugee Studies Centre, and I do hope that it will be a very fulfilling experience, both for you and for the Centre, and I'm sure it will be. In order to prepare for this lecture, I was very fortunate back in Jordan to have had the guidance of Dr. Yusuf Mansour, one of our leading economists, and Dr. Amal Sabbar, a very dear friend and um, with enormous experience um, in many of these related fields, uh, together with the support of May Abu Nuwar, who is here with us. Where are you, May? There you are. And uh, May is really a dearest friend and um, my right hand, if you don't mind me calling you that. Thank you, and I'm so thrilled you're here, May. Also here are my husband and children. We're all absolutely thrilled, myself, Walid, Saad, Zain and Zina, to be here with you this evening. There's a widespread perception that people generally live and work within their country of birth and that leaving a place of domicile is the exception and not the rule. Yet researchers have shown time and again, based upon historical and empirical observations and evidence, that migration is the story of humanity. In other words, migration, voluntary or forced, is the norm. 
History has been moulded by migrations. The Middle East is no exception. It has witnessed mass movements which in certain cases have altered its landscape dramatically. I belong to this region where hardly a decade goes by without a conflict or conflicts that lead to forced mass migration. As a Jordanian also, I've been able to experience firsthand how my country's location, its stability, as well as its relative moderation, has over the years made it a haven for people seeking safety and shelter from political, social and economic persecution. On the whole, Jordanians respond well in humanitarian crises, and I think it's at times like that that their best comes out, and they're very generous in their spirit. As we meet here at the Refugee Studies Centre, our thoughts turn to the critical situation for the thousands of refugees that have crossed from Syria into Jordan, Lebanon, Iraqi Kurdistan and Turkey since the current conflict began. For many other Syrians and Iraqis, the internal displacement to which they are being subjected also carries serious consequences. The arrival of the Palestinian refugees in the Arab-Israeli wars of 1948 and 1967 added dramatically to the population of Jordan. The second wave in 1967 brought with it 300,000 displaced people to the existing population of 1.5 million. Try to imagine the chaos and disruption that would happen in the UK if 13 million people were uprooted today. So that's what Jordan went through at that time on a relative scale. The Iraqi refugees also came in different waves. Many arrived in the aftermath of the 1991 Gulf War. However, the greatest number, almost half a million, took refuge in Jordan during the second Gulf War in 2003 as a result of its repercussions. Their sudden displacement and consequent hosting placed intense pressure on the country's physical infrastructure. Yet just as Jordan was trying to cope with the effects of this influx of refugees from Iraq, another major upheaval took place, further straining its already stretched resources when in 2011 the first wave of Syrian refugees started to arrive. So far, Jordan has hosted over 600,000 refugees and asylum seekers from Syria alone, a figure projected to increase by 100,000 by the end of 2014. Moreover, there is little evidence to indicate that the critical situation in Syria will subside in the near future, and today Jordan is bracing for greater challenges ahead. Not counting the Palestinian refugees, 20% of the residents of Jordan are refugees and asylum seekers from all over the world. Consequently, Jordan is among the highest recipient per capita of refugees in the world. But despite the implications of these taxing conditions, as Jordanians, we're comfortable with living in a country that almost since its inception has evolved largely as a multidimensional mosaic whose diversity has been a boon, a mix of anthropological, cultural, social and economic contributions of which Jordan is proud. And as Jordanians, we feel particularly now how important it is to preserve 
these conditions in Jordan, especially in view of the very violent climate that is erupting all around us and which has no tolerance and no moderation and no respect for the other. I think, if anything, this is making us in Jordan more aware of how we need to protect and preserve our gains in this regard. Within this framework, I've chosen to concentrate primarily in my talk on the Circassians, Chechens, and Armenians in Jordan. There are two reasons for choosing this, these groups in particular. First, their, fir their forced migration over a century ago provides a sufficient period of time to review and analyze contributions, outcomes, and gains. Second, and of interest in my opinion, is that all three groups represent forced mass migrations of non-Arab ethnicities. Unlike other groups that arrived in Jordan, these three communities had no kinship base or roots in Jordan prior to their arrival, which makes their initial plight, subsequent adjustments, and the mutually beneficial outcomes that grew between them and the local inhabitants all the more striking. Taking from Jordan's experience, it can be argued that advantages for the host country frequently do arise from willingly accepting refugees. Such advantages, which are not felt initially, often exceed the immediate short-term economic hardships and social fragmentation that at the time of forced migrations command most of the attention. Adjusting to migration does not only relate to those who have been displaced, but also to their hosts, regardless of whether the hosting has been done willingly or has been imposed. For the most part, nations that adjust well not only tend to be generally more humane, but also benefit more rapidly from the introduction of all types of new skills, labor, and capital that refugees bring with them, as well as the heightened demand for economic activity. On the other hand, nations that confine refugees to camps and inferior status ultimately curtail refugees' productivity, among other things, and limit cross-cultural and social interaction. As a result, the gains are fewer and the damage is greater. Thus, in the long term, refugees become a burden rather than a boon. Adoption by the host country involves the sharing not only of geographic space, physical and intellectual infrastructure, formal and informal institutions and settings, but also of the community's own way of life. Consequently, in the case of Jordan, every wave of refugees has meant a new stage of adopting and adapting by state and society alike. In order to reflect the perspectives and views of both women and men from the migrant communities under discussion in this lecture, interviews were carried out, hence opinions reflect the Jordanian setting in which refugees, for the most part, feel welcomed. My own observations stem largely from my personal experience as a development advocate and practitioner. Through my work in the area of human development over the last 40 years, I've been able to observe how Jordanians and different groups of refugees have come to build together to build the country as it is today. And what I've noticed over the years is how much flexibility has been needed both by public institutions, the state, and society itself, more importantly, 
to accept, to be able to mediate the political and social space between different actors, and at times when the stresses and tensions are very real. Uh, for the most part, we are able to do this, but obviously there are ups and downs to any process. I'd now like to share with you various aspects about the way forced migrants or refugees in Jordan have been able to integrate while maintaining their specific identities and to highlight their numerous contributions to the country. For the purposes of this lecture, I shall use the terms forced migrants, migrants or refugees interchangeably. Many of the forced migrants who came to Jordan brought skills with them and infused human capital endowments from their home countries, accumulated over decades and inherited from cultures far from the recipient country. They introduced different methods of production as well as new products which stimulated economic activity. And as the current debate regarding migrants in the UK continues to rage, the Jordanian experience may be informative, and I know that it occupies uh, a lot of the news headlines today in particular. But back to Jordan. These very gains would not have been achieved without the hospitality and openness of people and institutions, combined with the readiness of the refugees themselves to integrate and invigorate the fabric of the country. Looking back, and despite the problems and price initially paid, I do believe that as a result Jordan has emerged as a better country in which refugees have also played a part in its advancement. Such thinking was relatively uncommon until leading scholars on forced migration, such as Professor Barbara Harold Bond, introduced a radical shift in the way social sciences look at refugees. Previously, writings on the subject tended to focus on the various aspects of poverty, malnutrition, violence, oppression, racism, crime, illegality and conflict among the migrants themselves or between those displaced and the nationals of the host country. And this is probably largely due to the fact that in these kinds of situations, critical problems require immediate evaluation and urgent response, and also because the initial impact and scope of such predicaments tend to overshadow anything else. Consequently, less has been written about the long-term positive impact of refugees on the host country regarding situations where the formal and informal institutions of the host country itself allow them to participate as active and productive members of the local community. Under these kinds of helpful conditions, forced migrants become human resources, a fact which draws on the argument of Professor Harold Bond, who stressed that people, and I quote, should be allowed to settle amongst the local population and be assisted there to find a means of gaining a livelihood while at the same time coming under local governance. And in many areas of Jordan and in many situations and cases, not necessarily to do with the three groups that I'm just talking about tonight, but this is actually the case where um, refugees have uh, been integrated and uh, are definitely not living in camps and they are part of the community and um, answerable to local governance. 
As participants, refugees are capable of introducing new systems and technologies, innovative approaches and creative processes. Infusions of creativity at almost no expense work side by side with existing organizations and systems. Learning and positive externalities emerge as both sides learn from each other. As a result, higher levels of creativity and innovation materialize, which in turn promote development. Refugees can bring to an economy what could be described as creative construction as opposed to Joseph Schumpeter's concept of creative destruction because with them they often bring ready-made intellectual capital, skills, knowledge and crafts and hence their input is a form of creative construction since it is generated from outside the system. When refugees are encouraged to participate economically, the skills that they bring from the original homeland to the host community become an added value. And we see this today in the north of Jordan, in the governorate of, of Mafra. And this is a recent example where um, this governorate does not benefit from any natural resources. It is an almost uh, um, desert-like area. And with the arrival of the Syrian refugees, uh, large numbers of whom are not in the camps that you've heard about, namely Zahtari, but in the local communities. And these local communities have seen a sharp uh, rise in economic activity, new shops are opening, more people are working to cater for the refugees. And generally what was um, a rather, you know, um, uh, lagging behind kind of economic um, atmosphere has now turned far more into a very um, vibrant um, centre of activity owing largely due to the refugees and the demands that they need and which Jordanians themselves are filling. But even so, it goes without saying that severe challenges did present themselves to Jordan with every new wave of refugees that cannot be underestimated, many of which persist today. Among them, lack of water. Jordan is the second poorest country in the world when it comes to water. And um, obviously when there are huge additional numbers, then this becomes severely strained and there's very little water to go around and we are feeling this very much within the country. We have few natural resources in Jordan. Um, again, with every wave there was some encroachment on the limited arable lands and the urban sprawls are very visible uh, both in uh, major set settlements, major cities and obviously in Amman, the capital. However, Jordan's always relied largely owing to these sort of disadvantages on its people and on its human resources and has always put its human resources ahead of anything else. And I think that the more remarkable outcomes which form the basis for some of the thoughts that I share with you these, this evening are the ones I feel that to a great extent have made Jordan what it is today, a country and a society that have undergone widespread transformations due to the interaction and amalgamation of the different ethnicities that have sought and found refuge within its borders 
and where with time those who were once refugees have in turn become hosts to subsequent arrivals. Jordan was governed by the Ottoman Empire until the end of the First World War. As an imperial province, it received forced migrants expelled from the Caucasus by the Russian expansion in the 19th century following the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The flight of these different groups from their original homelands was primarily due to persecution. Deprived of their land and territorial rights in their lost lost homeland, they gradually set about restoring their social cohesion and identity in Jordan. The Circassian and Chechen refugees, who on the whole were agricultural settlers, created or expanded rural settlements that eventually grew into cities. The Armenians, who were mainly artisans, integrated primarily within cities. I now come to the experience of the Circassian community, their forced migration and subsequent integration within the Jordanian society. The term Circassian in Jordan refers to a group of kin-based Muslim communities originating in the Caucasus Mountains. During the 18th and 19th centuries, Russian expansion sought to incorporate the North Caucasus into the Russian Empire in order to establish a warm water port on the Black Sea and to access trade routes to Central Asia. This expansion was resisted by the Circassian population and the conflict resulted in widespread deportation and displacement of Circassians into the Ottoman Empire, whose policies during the late 19th century favoured migration. Because the Ottoman Empire was growing weaker, it encouraged Muslim communities such as the Circassians to migrate so that they could assume the role of guards by proxy in its territories. Consequently, some were transported to Turkey, some were transported to Syria, some to Baghdad, and some to Amman and its uh, environs. And I think most of you know this, but I just have to set the scene. When they first came to Jordan, the Circassians had a difficult time. Their arrival in the area, which now forms modern Jordan, was then at the periphery of a more vulnerable Ottoman Empire and had little security. Thus, among other things, the Circassians became responsible for establishing border control. They were obliged to adapt their farming methods to the dry climate of the region. However, their settlements near water sources, which are exempted from taxes by the Ottomans, caused friction between them and the Jordanian tribes. Circassians were resettled by the Ottoman authorities in Amman, which is today our capital city, Wadisir, Sueleh, Jarash, Naur, and Rosefa, all areas that have more water and better land than other areas in the country. And thus they established the route of today's major urban centres in those areas. As refugees still in the process of establishing their social, economic and political position, Circassian communities developed a strong relationship with what was then the fledgling emirate of Transjordan after the First World War. Beginning with the reign of King Abdullah I, founder of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, to King Abdullah II, our present-day monarch, the Circassian ceremonial guard at the royal court have worn their traditional dress, and it's really lovely to see that today. 
from their original territories, the Circassians brought their particular model of ox-driven carts and the two-wheel and four-wheel horse-driven carts, which were then still unknown to the region. As carts needed roads, the Circassians set about building roads, and the carts became a means of public transport. The experience of the Chechens in Jordan shares similarities with the Circassians. Chechens are also a Muslim ethnic minority who were expelled from the Caucasus by Russian incursions beginning in the late 19th century and who migrated into present-day Iraq, Turkey and Jordan. The Chechens that came to Jordan started in a place called Qasr Shabib, later known as Zarga, and there created for its establishment. Today, Zarqa has become Jordan's third largest city and industrial hub. Actually, It's quite a challenging place to live because it is so industrial. But anyway, that's what um, the Chechen contribution was, and it's a very important industrial hub. But anyway, from Sarga they spread to Suele, Sukhna, and Azrag, where in 1912 they built a grain mill. Their descendants proudly described them as having settled the land. And this is always a bit of a bone of contention. Um, with the ethnic Jordanians who say, well, it wasn't the outsiders who settled the land, we settled the land, but it's, it's always interesting to hear the debate. As craftsmen sharing many characteristics and ties, cooperation between the Circassians and Chechens was apparent from the early days. The two minorities were farmers and craftsmen. They bought new masonry, farming techniques and irrigation systems and adapted such innovations to their new homeland. Circassians built the first hydraulic flour mill and later introduced diesel-operated equivalents. Both communities established important food security for themselves and their neighbours and channeled water for irrigation, and accordingly their contribution to the development of the nascent manufacturing and farming industries had a considerable impact on the early socio-economic landscape. Early on, these achievements were buttressed by a deliberate state policy of inclusion and integration. Based on the Jordanian constitution drawn up in 1952, all subsequent electoral laws have stipulated a quota for Circassian and Chechen Jordanians. So in parliament there is always a quota for both minorities. In the Jordanian parliamentary elections of 1993, the first woman to be elected to parliament was a Circassian who made use of the quota to win her seat. Tujan al-Faisal served as a member of parliament from 1993 to 1997. An articulate newspaper columnist and former TV commentator, Tujan was regarded by many, both inside and outside Jordan, as a powerful person, both for her political ideas and her advocacy of human rights. And I worked with her uh, for many years, and she was always extremely forceful in her opinions and stood up for what she believed was right. Uh, Something to be admired, but not necessarily allowing for opinions of anybody else who believed they were right. But she was a very brave and um, uh, gifted woman, uh, still is. Um, Sadly, she's uh, 
not as well as she was back then. I had the pleasure of, of uh, her company uh, all the way to Beijing for the fourth world conference on women. And she was uh, really, I could say, um, almost as articulate as Hillary Clinton. So that was fun. <laughs> Circassian recruits constituted an important part of Jordan's armed forces. In fact, the first registered recruit in the Jordanian army was a Circassian, and his army ID carried the number one. Both Circassian and Chechen Jordanians came to hold positions in numerous state structures, including diplomatic, cabinet, and parliamentary posts. Jordan's ninth prime minister was a Circassian who went on to head four cabinets. A Chechen Jordanian has come to be one of the longest serving parliamentarians. Circassians have also played a formative part in Jordan's cultural setting as the archives of the National Library show the very first book to be printed after the establishment of the Emirate of Transjordan was the translation of a Circassian book. Presently, the aim of the existing Circassian charity associations and learning centers is to strengthen identity and language through cultural events and language courses, as well as sport and charity activities. Circassian dance, folk music, and art have enriched Jordan's cultural heritage, whereby Jordanian Circassian dancers have reached international standards and several troops, in fact, perform worldwide. While integrated as a subpopulation in Jordan, Chechens have, res- have remained a conservative and homogeneous community. Nearly all Jordanian Chechens surveyed in 2000 felt that the Chechen language was not dying, neither in their community or their home, although the majority preferred Arabic as the language of instruction in school. Many who visited Chechnya from Jordan over the years felt that people speaking the language in their ancestral homeland had become less Chechen than they were. And I quote, We speak better Chechen than the Chechens in Chechnya. They heard us speak and said, I remember my grandmother using those words. Some Jordanian Chechens stated in interviews that they would not relocate. One community leader points out that, quote, my ambition was always to visit free Chechnya, but if Chechnya was today a free state, I would stay and die and be buried in Jordan. I now come to the third and final group in this talk, which is Jordan's Armenian community. A major difference between the affiliations of Circassians and Chechens on the one hand and Armenians on the other is religion. Armenians have maintained a strongly Christian identity since their arrival in Jordan. In fact, Armenians form the largest non-Arab Christian minority in the country. In 1915, the Ottoman authority ordered the expulsion and deportation of Armenians from their homes in eastern Anatolia and Armenia to the Syrian desert and then to Lebanon, Jordan and Palestine. Fleeing the killings and persecutions endured by their communities, the condition in which they arrived in Jordan was one of a people who had undergone tremendous suffering. 
Armenians in Jordan still recall the letter written by Sharif Hussein of Mecca, my great-grandfather, asking the people of Transjordan to treat Armenians well and respect their language and religion. On a recent visit to Jordan, and this was literally less than 10 days ago, the President of the Republic of Armenia voiced his appreciation for Sharif Hussein and his sons, quote, for their support of Armenian refugees in the region, especially in 1917, and for taking care of Armenian women and children and safeguarding their belongings. He also paid tribute to the efforts of the late King Hussein, who dispatched aid to Armenia after the earthquake that hit the country in the last century. Early arrivals first settled in the north and later in the south of Jordan, and eventually in the 1930s they moved to the Ashrafiya neighborhood of Amman, where between the 1930s and 50s they founded Armenian community organizations such as Homent Men, Al-Watani Sports Club, and the Armenian Relief Society. And these organizations have steadily helped to maintain the Armenian culture, whether through music, drama, or other social activities. Although today many Armenian families have left Ashrafiya to live in other areas of Amman, the Armenian quarter there still maintains its identity as a social, religious and cultural hub for the Armenian community through its churches and schools. Beautifully positioned at the top of Ashrafiya, St. Thaddeus Church overlooks many parts of Amman and is considered by many of the city's residents to symbolize Jordanians' appreciation of diversity. And it sits high on one of the original seven hills, as it was called. Amman has many more than seven hills now, but uh, the Ashrafiya raised area is uh, really very prominent and very beautiful. And in fact, I was there just three weeks ago and uh, at the church itself and it was night time and below me were all the lights of Amman twinkling and it really is truly a symbol for many of the residents of the capital. Unlike many of the Circassians and Chechens who joined public institutions and state structures, Armenians went into the private sector. Jordan's hospitable climate and culture of acceptance and respect for the other enabled Armenians to develop and utilize their original skills as artisans and entrepreneurs. One remarkable exception was in the 1950s, a turbulent period in the history of Jordan, when an Armenian general became the second person to hold the position of director of public security. And this is an example, I believe, of the state's early policy of inclusion. But for the most part, Armenians filled the early need for tradespeople as carpenters, mechanics, shoemakers, tailors, hairdressers, and photographers. And I still warmly recall how two generations of Armenian photographers and hairdressers have been closely associated with members of my family. And I won't go into more detail, but uh, really, <laughs> it's a good memory. Records of the Amman municipality soon after the establishment of the Emirate of Transjordan show that Armenians were among the first to be given trade licenses and rent registrations, and today members of the hard-working Armenian community in Jordan own and operate their own businesses, ranging from car agencies, electronic goods, to the more artistic design of jewellery and gold. 
The Armenians of Jordan believe that their language is essential to maintaining identity, and therefore at a young age they started learning, they start learning to speak it at home. However, rather than going for lessons at a language center, the Yuzbashian Gulbenkian Elementary School in Ashrafiya teaches Armenian alongside the Jordanian curriculum, a testimony to the community's sense of belonging to both identities. The Jordanian curriculum has to be taught, but uh, the Armenians could uh, have the option of their language being taught independently elsewhere. But this blend, um, I think, is... is, uh, something to be very much recognized and appreciated by all. In keeping with the literary and artistic traditions of her Armenian forefathers, the author, Margot Malatjalian, pioneered children's theater in Jordan. Five of Margot's works are prize-winning books and are in fact used as supplementary reading for the Arabic language curricula. Armenians do not have their own parliamentary quota since they are considered to be part of the Christian quota, but they prize their involvement in the country's democratic process and actively promote it. For instance, in the 1997 parliamentary elections, as many as 80% of Armenians cast their ballots, which was the highest participation rate amongst all communities. Although the possibility of returning to the Republic of Armenia to benefit from employment and educational opportunities is open to the entire diaspora, according to local community leaders, few Jordanian Armenians consider doing so as they feel that they are part of Jordan and they think of it as home. All in all, the limitations of this short paper can't possibly do justice or provide adequate insight into some of the experiences of the three non-Arab groupings of refugees that settled in Jordan in the early stages of the country's formation. At times, refugees were initially thought of as intruders and competitors who were attempting to share a nascent geopolitical space and scarce resources. At other times, they were even considered to be at variance with existing cultural and social norms, a burden of outsider groups juxtaposed upon the indigenous communities. As in similar situations, the Jordanian context required that the formal and informal agencies of both refugee communities and host country should come into play, for in the long run, the outcome would be determined by the ability of the refugees to adapt and the willingness of the host to adopt. Hence, the Jordanian experience shows that for the most part, the Circassians, Chechens and Armenians, amongst other early groups of refugees, were generally able to overcome the initial obstacles and challenges that they faced. As their specific cultures have not only endured but have become an integral part of the country's social fabric, at present it is difficult to determine the effect each each group has had on Jordanian society and largely because they have become such an integral part of it. What is clear is that the early efforts of all three have since been built upon with substantial benefits to Jordan's economic, industrial and agricultural development. Culturally, the three communities have to various, varying degrees retained their languages, but they express concern that language which remains the cornerstone of their cultures and identities will be lost to the younger generation. 
Although the Circassians, Chechens, and Armenians have been in Jordan for over a century, generally they still prefer to marry within the same ethnic group. Though this mindset is, is gradually diminishing and intermarriage with other Jordanians is becoming more acceptable. From the interviews conducted with individuals from the different communities, it was obvious that they fully uphold their biculturalism and furthermore are proud of their acquired Jordanian identity. As an Armenian woman expressed, quote, We have never felt that there is a conflict between our Armenian and Jordanian identities. While another Armenian community member maintained, We are Armenian by descent, but completely Jordanian too. Once Akassian summed it up by saying, we couldn't have had a better alternative. In conclusion, I have drawn on Jordan's own experience to demonstrate how refugee engagement with the host country and its population can have positive outcomes for both sides. As I explained from the outset, I deliberately chose to focus solely on the forced migrations of the Circassians, Chechens and Armenians and their impact on the evolution of Jordan. But at the same time, I totally believe that their endeavours and sense of belonging have not been forged in isolation, but in combination with the dynamic role of other larger refugee communities of Arab origin, which have all played their part. And nobody is a better example of that than the Palestinians or the Jordanians of Palestinian origins. And it's difficult to really set that role apart because the Palestinian population is such an integral and important part of Jordan um, throughout the ages. And while we each have... Uh, our positions and our situation and our circumstances but um, in terms of feelings for each other I can quite sincerely say that there is a deep respect and understanding and appreciation of the one for the other and Palestinians recognize their need for Jordan and Jordan is very aware of its role and the loyalty that it should always carry to our Palestinian brethren. As relations between migrant communities and the rest of the Jordanian population have matured, the workable space which has been cultivated has been vital, not only in safeguarding Jordan's survival, often against insurmountable odds, but ultimately in helping the country to go forward, as well as to weather the volatility of a very turbulent region. Essentially, no achievement can be greater than the evolution of Jordan itself, both as a country and a nation, whose commitment to upholding its ethnic, religion, religious and cultural diversity forms its foundations. While in the case of Jordan, the fact that combined efforts stimulated the country's development is well recognized, so too should the process of empowerment promoted by its institutions. Had there not been the political will from the outset to uphold a policy of openness and inclusion, the process of development which followed would not have been as rewarding. The 
gains that came with the arrival of large numbers and diverse groups should to some extent therefore be credited to the welcoming climate of a host country that was willing to accommodate the other. Just as the Jordanian environment helped refugees to overcome the initial trauma of being driven out of their original homeland, so was it eventually able to embrace the pluralism pluralism that resulted from their subsequent integration. Refugees in Jordan have had the right to move freely within the country with access to social services, security and justice, the right to own property and engage in trade and other remunerative services and activities across the country and beyond. For the most part, this position has continuously been endorsed by the Jordanian state and society. The situation of refugees in Jordan is in many ways depicted by the argument of Barbara Harrell Bond, which challenges the stereotypical profile of refugees as helpless victims and maintains that they can participate fully as active members of society. As Dawn Chatty points out, and I quote, in Jordan, the Circassians and Chechnyans' transformation from refugee to settler to respected citizen was complete. I'm proud to say <clears throat> that this climate of openness and acceptance would not have evolved without the wisdom and humanity of His Majesty King Hussein, my late brother. Through each period of turmoil and strife, it was his inspiration and insight that led Jordan to become a refuge for peaceful and productive coexistence in the Middle East. And there is no better way than to end this particular story about Jordan than with his words. This country of immigrants and hosts is based on the principles of equality in rights and duties, of tolerance and of sacred national unity, which we hold in pride. It is one of the essential foundations of this country's strength and tenacity. True citizenship, I maintain, is to believe in this country and to belong to it. Please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.